That's incredible. Will not be seen tonight due to the following ABC special movie presentation. But it will return next week at its regular time with more incredible stories. Apparently, the surgery center thinks I'm a gremlin. Do they? <laughs> That's yes. a problem, then. <laughs> Not why. No. Because, uh, uh, because they, uh, uh, the instructions were I cannot eat after midnight. <laughs> did they say anything about getting you wet? Uh, they did say I can't drink water. You are, you are much loved throughout the two free two true freaks nation but i don't know if they want to throw water on you and have multiple doctor bills going around (laughs) when you first started doing the music i didn't realize you were doing the theme music from gremlins and i almost had the image of a conga line in my mind i was thinking of a conga line of doctor bills going across doctor bill yeah we were all doctor bill yeah it'll be like uh the movie where uh Michael Keaton cloned himself, and every, yeah, every time he cloned himself, it got a little dumber. Except the, the starting one isn't that great to begin with. One See, I beat that. you to it. <laughs> yes. What up, bitches? That's a nice way to play. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? See, now you could you could play uh, that song I just put up there. What'd you put up now? Weird Al's version of "Living in America." Living with a hernia. Yeah, Living that's, with a hernia. I love that song. That's kind of fitting with you and your multiple surgeries. Living with the kidney stone. No, ah, are you... Got to get it. <laughs> out of living... my... I wish I could swear freely in this episode because, dude, you, you swear one... as freely as you like, and I no, will just I, I will really... I will bleep you. Oh, okay. So swear as much as you want. That's okay. You, yeah, it's got seriously. Be... You picked one f- up story, man. I I. 
don't deny that for a second. See, I don't think you and I are going to disagree strongly. I think it's going to be a matter of your mileage will vary. But I don't think our actual points are going to disagree because I'm not going to try and tell you that this is some... You know, some brilliant bit of comic book writing here. No, it makes no sense at all. It really oh, it makes total not. sense. We are no, we are going to fight, man. No, don't you, you take like, that back I right now. Like... <laughs> the Polly and Scotty show. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> no, it's 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 trippy, trippy stuff. I, I don't deny it for a second. And and there are tales whether they're apocryphal or reality but there are tales of uh kirby stepping out into the back porch in his uh california home and smoking a doobie before he drew some pages sometimes oh i i can believe it after reading this one it's not even how trippy it is and in some instances it it's like it's literally like the dialogue doesn't make any sense well, that we'll you know, talk about a little bit too, and that I'm not going to debate. That I'm not. There'll be no debate because I think Kirby's dialogue is weak always. Because there, there are, there were. I wish I had made a better note, but there was one instance where Cap said something, and a character responded, and it was like the character responded to a different conversation. I'm like, wait, what? You know, it, it took me right out of it. Like, what? Where? In my mind, he's saying, "Okay, what's he going to say here? Here's what Cap says. Hold on for a second. All right, the answer could be that. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but Jack, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, smoke this; it'll make sense. Ah, oh, I understand now. Holy sh! Did you hear that? I thought you fell yeah. out of your chair. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What is that thunder? Yeah, um, big old peel. It's of nice over here. <laughs> Are you going to be able to stay online? I hope so. Well, we'll find mm-hmm. out, I guess. All right. Excuse me. Not if you so, sabotage it that way. Sabotage. You say sabotage, I say sabotage. Sabotage. Mm, wow, you got real clear all of a sudden. It's like I'm there next to you. Turn around! Yeah! <laughs> Crap my pants. Too bad I didn't shoot that stone out. Scott saying hello. Hey. There you hey. are. I don't know if you guys heard that. That was a hell of a big crack outside the window. Tell them no, to pull the pants gone. up. We didn't hear you at all. <laughs> Did you drop off the call? Uh, it, it like it was cycling, like it was trying to connect. So I, I just ended up hanging up. So it, it was doing a Lance Armstrong. <laughs> Here we go. This ought to throw off your ability to concentrate through the course of the episode. It's not you in a nude shot, is it? <laughs> oh, so close. Because I, I did just eat. I was telling Paul that uh, the surgery center thinks I'm a gremlin because they said, yeah, you can't eat after midnight. Don't drink any water. So Paul pictured like uh, oh, Scott, multiple Dr. Bills. <laughs> I don't see anything. Oh, down here. What's this? I'm not seeing anything. It's body paint, Bill. What? It's not clothes. <laughs> Please get it out from, from front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anything. You don't see Scott's uh, Scott's icon? No, it's still... Uh, no, it's still... Uh, what do you call it? No, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it is. What do you call it, all right? It is on mine. It's it's still it's, uh, it's... Dr. Zayas with Marilyn Monroe. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm looking right at it! You know, your screen is, is dumb. <laughs> like, <laughs> although I wish mine was. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't see anything. That, I'm at is, a loss. that is so gross. 
Well, I get nothing. It's it's a guy with body paint on to look like Captain America. Oh, ew. They did. <laughs> <laughs> they did everything. <laughs> oh, really? Ugh. I don't see anything. I guess I'm glad I don't see anything. You should be glad. <laughs> I got a better one. This one's awesome. Alright, hang on. I'll change it because that's just going to creep Paul out the entire episode. I wouldn't want to look at Captain America. I didn't America's get to see it. Schwank. Consider yourself lucky. Either. Consider yourself lucky. Please change it. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'll post it up in the link so I can see the picture. Uh, why Why am I asking these things? Yeah, uh, why do you want to see this? Are you, you hearing enough to make you don't know you don't want, want to? to see this? Because I'm patriotic. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the red, white, and blue. Only in America. Living with the hernia. So did you see Struck by Lightning? I, said, I put a link in there for you? Yes, uh, and I still don't... You don't, don't remember that at all? 79. Uh, yeah, you, were, you were mighty young. But Jack Elam as the Frankenstein oh, really? sitcom. I mean, how, how great is that? Hmm. How long was it on? 11, 11 episodes. episodes. Wow. Only four of which actually aired. Well, three of which aired. What are you talking about? TV series, Struck by Lightning in 1979. Don't, don't, don't be saying that. It was a sitcom. Lightning cracking right out the window. It was a sitcom. Jack Elam played the Frankenstein monster. That name sounds familiar. Who is that? Uh, <laughs> do you remember See, that time it changed? Do you remember in Cannonball Run the guy he who was, played he, who played the proctologist guy? Oh yeah, yeah, all right, that's yeah, Jackie. Yeah. He was in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West with Charles Bronson. Was he, he played the monster or the scientist? He played the monster. No, I thought it said he played the doctor. I'm pretty sure he played the monster. Ted Stein is a science teacher who inherits a spooky old New England inn inhabited by its hulking good nature caretaker, Frank. It turns out that Ted is the descendant of the original Dr. Frankenstein, oh, Frank and Frank is the monster. <laughs> who needs a special serum every 50 years to stay alive, and he wants Ted to recreate it for him. If you don't, I'll die, he explains. Let me put it another way. If you don't, you'll die. Ted agrees mm-hmm. to stay and continue his ancestors' experiments while keeping Frank's identity a secret. Come on, a sitcom with the Frankenstein monster. How do you do better than that? Only listed three episodes. Oh, man. How did you enjoy your picture, Bill? Uh, I'll let you know. I I shan't be downloading. (laughs) In fact, just hit cancel right now. Okay. So are those other people in the background naked, too? Do you really care? (laughs) I'm trying to look at them. Why would you even ask? What is the matter with you? Here's here's an idea, Bill. Close the picture. It's disgusting. It's like a train. (laughs) Wow, good thing I didn't have to have a camera go up, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You guys want to get rolling or what? (laughs) Just sit here talking about painted schlongs. (laughs) There's a parody song in there somewhere. That's an opener right there. Painted schlongs, why don't you get off my screen now? <laughs> Tired of seeing you and having Scott post nasty pictures. <laughs> Back to the bin.
when Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, then the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty shield. I guess I better get my Incredible Hulk body paint out. <laughs> Remember to paint little, Bill. Get get the small brush. <laughs> oh, burn. Uh, get the modeling brush. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, let's jump right in, okay? Yeah, who's bringing yep. this in, not me? I'll bring us in. And if... Anybody listening can't tell what we're talking about. Happy 4th of July. This is a special Two True Freaks bonus episode in in honor of our wonderful country. And I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my two fellow Americans, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. (laughs) Scott Gardner. How's it going? It's going eight. It's <laughs> all right. All right. Right, right out of the gate, you, you you touched on one of my nitpicks about this holiday because so many people describe this hol- holiday as simply the Fourth of July, and it's like no Independence Day. It's American Independence Day because you have to remember we're going out to a global audience, so you know we we have people in. This is uh, the day we took back the Earth from the aliens, right? Some right. stupid commie listening to the show. That's what Bill Pullman said. <laughs> well, you know, there there are people in other countries that are looking at the calendar going, yeah, so. American Independence Day. Yay. This is I when s- we this is when we kicked Andy Leyland's butt back across the sea. Uh oh. <laughs> ah, you're gonna stir things up. <laughs> Let me add him. Let me add him. <laughs> And Steve and Lacey will just come and take you out, Spataro. <laughs> the MI6 you. All right. Well, having no response to that, uh, for the for Indo- American Independence Day, we have chosen to do one book. And no, one no, no. Book only. You, you, you yes. have chosen. Yes. I am that distancing myself right now. Okay? I have chosen, and I am not going to bury the lead at all. Scott and I will be duking it out as this episode goes on, because <laughs> I love this book. I got the gloves on, I'm telling you. you love I this chose, book? Wow. and I asked Dr. Bill and Mr. Scott to join me. To Wait, do... for this episode, isn't he going to be Scoot! Scott! Scott! Go back to his, his roots. You know, now, he, has, he hasn't been in this new, country I, long enough to get rid of that accent no, yet. No, no, no. I have a new nickname, thanks to one of our wonderful listeners. I, I've been waiting... For the the nickname to come along, you know, Bill got Doctor Bill, and you got Professor Paul. No, I am not like, Professor Paul. Whoa, 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 whoa! I am not Professor Paul. Producer, Paul producer, Paul. producer, and you're Paul. the chairman of the Scott, board. right? <laughs> what? You're superlative Scott. Yeah, starting to feel that way sometimes. <laughs> Synonymous Scott. I Synonymous. Uh, secondary <laughs> Scott. <laughs> I like the Mister <laughs> Comics <laughs> label that uh, that I got recently oh, I, by I, Professor I, Allen. Yeah, I kind of like that. Mr. Comics? Yeah. Mr. Yeah, Comics like Gardner? That. I kind of uh, like that. It's got a certain certain showbiz quality to it. Too bad you couldn't have been on the Mr. Comics Ape Show. 
Mr. Comics. Yeah, Mr. Comics wasn't on the only Mr. <laughs> Comics episode ever. The only thing well, Mr. Comics ever did, and you weren't there for it. <laughs> I, I I strip you of your title. Well, <laughs> here I, I, I rip I, off the the uh, the patch. <laughs> here I was just going like, to compliment you guys on on how fun. well you covered for me in that episode, and I, I liked I liked the excuse because it was true that you gave that. Uh, I'm trying to remember how you worded it. Something about I was, I I was out hobnobbing with with our sponsors or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. It just it cracked me up when I listened to it because it was actually true. I was I was out hanging out with uh, with Tim Elliott who had sponsored Apes Month. So I just thought that was, I thought it was funny the way that you guys so covered it. Anyway, he sponsored Apes Month. Then where's the half that goes to the back to the bins people? He sponsored Two True Freaks Apes Month. So. And Back to the Bins is a Two True Freaks show. No, no, no. He Ergo, sponsored if so Two facto. True Freaks proper portion of, of Apes Okay, Month. okay. You know what? I'm, I'm willing to take a pay cut here. I did Battle for the Planet of the Apes with Andy. Oh, no, that's true. Oh, my goodness. All right, well, let's see. We're going to have to figure out. Okay, we'll... we'll they can we'll... split an atom. <laughs> <laughs> oh well what's that song nothing from nothing leaves nothing and what what was this whole thing about a-listers and c-listers what what was that all about you're well, you're very it, self-denigrating what is that all about we are and and some of it's in good fun and some of it's just to try and avoid ever having a big head like we joke around about having if you start thinking of yourself as as being a podcast rock star in any way, shape, or form, then who's going to want to have anything to do with you? Exactly. Exactly. I, I, you know, I, I, I preach this all the time, or at least I, I feel like I do anyway. Maybe I don't say it enough, honestly, but yes, I, I am both endlessly amu- amused and endlessly annoyed with people that consider themselves, you know, some sort of celebrities in the field of, t- of podcasting because it's ridiculous. I mean, as we have, I feel, amply proven by this point, all of us on the Two True Freaks feed, you know, anybody can do this. You know, any fool can sit down with a microphone and record something and throw it out there on the Internet. You know, I don't think it really takes a whole lot of, of special skills. As a matter of fact, I, I think some of the 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 attributes that it takes to to do this and be even halfway successful about it are actually um things that might be considered maybe not necessarily negative but just kind of like i don't know like like uh annoying or something if you were to apply <laughs> them like in a, right like in a job what, what's that i said that's right in my wheelhouse yeah you mean things like borderline personality disorders yeah Exactly. Andy and I were likening ourselves to the substitute teacher who comes in and uh, gives the class that no one wants to hear. (laughs) But we honestly we very much. We really enjoyed doing it, so I'm I'm hoping people enjoyed it. And and just that way. Just to to finish the thought that you were having, I, I don't see this as any type of road to fame or fortune. Clearly, fortune is out of the question anyway. Uh, but it, what, it, what it's been is it's been a, a, a road to meeting a lot of cool people whose company I enjoy. And and it gives me a weekly forum to talk comics, and I'm never going to complain about that. Hmm. So, once again, having re-re-re-disposed of the conversation, <laughs> our hero <laughs> will redirect us back to Captain America's Bicentennial Battles. 
which I don't think I actually mentioned that that's the book we're covering this week. This week. I don't like, think we let you get that far. No, you're right. Now, what is the official name of this? Because I'm looking at the Indicia, and it says Marvel Treasury Special featuring Captain America's Bicentennial Battles. Is, is that the name of the book? Yes, it is not an issue of Marvel Treasury Edition, which right. was the regular ongoing series at the time. So this is a one-shot, then? Yes, this is a special. Okay, that Kirby, I... you know, say what you want about Kirby, and I'm sure we're going to say a lot before we're done. He pumped this out while putting out the monthly book. Now, that was one thing I was going to ask you. Was he the regular guy on Cap at the time this came out? Because I remember he came back and had a stint on Cap yeah, that yeah. I've read bits and pieces of, like Mad Bomb and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah. That's exactly when he came back. He came back, he did the Mad Bomb story, and this came out kind of simultaneously with all of that. Hmm. So, if nothing else, the guy was incredibly prolific. Oh, no, no kidding, yeah. And apparently that comes from, you know... Uh, a feeling of, of of need to you know feed his family that that you know it was he could never slow down because he was always trying to provide now forgive me if i'm getting ahead of the story here but um i noticed that the the credits on this are very strange because it never says written by it so the credits literally read edited conceived and drawn by jack kirby and then it goes on to list the the inkers there's uh three different inkers the letter and the colorist, but it never mentions writer. Now, did he write this thing? Uh, I would think the answer is a clear yes. I mean, I would think so, having read it. Um, and you, you, you did step on me a little there, I have to tell you, because I have my notes here when I was going to talk about the, uh, you know, when I was going to start talking about the issue, I was going to mention who wrote and who did everything. And in my notes, I have story edited, conceived, and drawn, probably after smoking a doobie, by Jack Kirby. <laughs> See, I didn't step on you. I gave you a nice segue right into it. But but I, I wasn't. I, I, if I didn't uh, explain that I had that written down, I never would have gotten a chance to throw that joke out there. <laughs> Are we gonna? Oh, I think, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I think there's going to be plenty of of mentions of substances that Jack Kirby may or may not have partaken of uh, in the creation <laughs> of this book because. Uh, I will tip my hand slightly early to say that uh, I walked away from this with a swirled head going, what What the hell did I just read? Uh, you read a wonderful book. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. We'll talk more. We'll, we'll get into this as we go on. But why don't we just jump right so, into the story? Unless you guys oh, okay. have anything else you want to throw out. Well, first. I mean, do we want to mention the breakout character after? The brand yeah, new? Yeah, I, I okay. Think, I think we uh, you, you can give his post- Marvel Treasury special uh, incarnation after, uh, I think, after the story's done. What? After this riveting story. Mr. Ooh, we have Scott wondering. He's, Scott's going to stay oh. till the end just to hear what you have to say now. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. So, as we've already said, we're covering the 1976 all-new Marvel, Marvel Treasury special, Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, which is the oversized Treasury edition-sized book uh, with a $1.50 price tag on it. And it says a Jack Kirby king-size spectacular. The cover, which is by Kirby, shows Cap front and center with four shots of him at historical events and my only problem with this cover is the way his head seems to be about an eighth of an inch too low 
It just doesn't seem like he's, he's situated right. He's like if ducking. He was, yeah, but he's ducking in a strange way. But other than that, I think this is one of the iconic covers. I think uh, everybody has probably seen this at one time or another. And uh, I think it's a great one. And we've already gone through who the... Uh, who the team that put it no well actually you mentioned that there's three inkers but the inkers are herb trimpy john romita and barry smith lettering is by john costanza and it's colored by paul rachelson phil phil rachelson phil so it's got the yes book. you're right it is phil i just like to think anybody whose name begins with p is paul and that they're all trying to be more like me <laughs> okay you want to jump right into the story I think we should. <laughs> Chapter 1, Mr. Buddha. History is people. It is people that shape the image of a nation. The years and events that fill the record of the past are only a pale reflection of the motives which moved Americans from our early rustic beginnings to the nervous present to make our bicentennial canvas a mural of awesome power. In this treasury special, who but Captain America is qualified to ride the range of two centuries in search of those who lived, those who are here, and the Americans yet to come. He will make the journey, but not without the help of Mr. Buddha. Our splash page has Cap walking in after being invited, before he walked in, by Mr. Buddha, who is in some type of pyramid structure. Mr. Buddha's astral self comes in and inhabits his body. He tells Cap that he teaches people to, be to believe and opens some type of mystical doorway as Cap walks out. Cap then has to navigate through a maze of corridors which ultimately lead him to a room where two Nazi soldiers and Adolf Hitler are interrogating Bucky Barnes. They are looking for Cap, and as Cap comes in, the Red Skull tries to sneak attack him with the butt of a gun, as opposed to just shooting him. But Cap whacks him in the, in the face with a sh his shield. Cap makes quick work of the soldiers and then goes after Adolf himself and smashes him face to face with the guard. Then he frees Bucky and they flee under heavy fire. They make their way to the woods when Bucky is suddenly gone and Cap is back with Mr. Buddha, who tells Cap to take some comfort that Bucky still lives in some corner of never-ending time. He tells Cap to broaden his knowledge and see all. Cap says he's not planning to see all and says goodbye shaking Buddha's hand. Unbeknownst to him, however, Buddha planted a talisman on his palm, which will take him on a trip through an America which no others have seen. We close out the first chapter with a beautiful double-page spread where Cap sees an array of visions of fighting Americans. Confronted by this, he quickly leaves the building, which leads us to Chapter 2. Who's got Chapter 2? <clears throat> chapter 2. Little does Cap know that he carries the influence of Mr. Buddha on his person. He takes no notice of, of his right palm in his eagerness to leave the area, but he bears the symbol that will take him to distances beyond credibility. He will find America as the lost superhero. Cap catches a cab from Ernest Borgnine, being secretive as to the destination. The sounds of bandstand boogie play as Cap tries, as Cap sees the hippy trippy sign that Buddha placed on his palm glow, and suddenly, like magic, he's in the city of brotherly love and sisterly, if you watch Game of Thrones. Finding himself some 200 years in the past, he is, <clears throat> he is taken to the business of one Benjamin Franklin. 
Stunned by meeting the legendary icon, he is further taken by surprise when in walks Betsy Ross to admire his outfit. In fact, she is inspired by it. Ben and Betsy are so moved to use its design in the flag, in the new flag for the country. Captain America, to put it mildly, loses his shit and accuses Ben of ripping him off. Head pounding from this chicken and the egg scenario, he leans against the wall, wanting to Buddha slash Calgon take him away. A tap on the shoulder finds Humphrey Bogart asking Cap if he can help a fellow American down on his luck. Steve quickly blows him off, Bugs Bunny style. Next, he annoys a local paperboy by trying to get a look at the date on the newspaper. Hearing the headlines, Captain Cap realizes he is somewhere in the Great, De- Great Depression. Oh, it must be uh, 2014. Oh, no, 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 it's the 1930s. At that moment, Edward G. Robinson, no relation to me, pulls up and demands a paper. Yeah, see, give me the paper, kid. And shoves the kid and doesn't pay. Cap rips off the door to the car, demanding the fake pays the boy. Lefty Larkin's boys open up on Cap and the, and the young lad, but a little duck and cover shield action saved at both of them. The uh, stereotypical Clancy the Cop swoops in and takes Lefty away as Cap's new age palm symbol begins to glow once more. Join our hero next chapter for Whoopi Doopy Hi Ho Geronimo or I Was Born a Coal Miner Superhero. On to chapter three. Can I just point out the fact that of all the eras he travels to in this story, I'm pretty sure this is the only one he actually lived through. Why the hell does he need to see the date on the newspaper from the yeah. newsboy to place himself in time? I thought that part was kind of strange. Well, but one, anyway. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we can talk, talk about that later. <laughs> All right. So the Bicentennial Trail is long and winding. Captain America, forced to tread its living byways, is beginning to absorb its sights and sounds and emotional content as no man ever has. Each brief experience is a glimpse of dimensions sorely lacking in the realms of words which shape a country's image. And if you're going, huh? Yeah, so did I. Chapter 3, My Fellow Americans. Having time jumped once again, Cap now finds himself in the American Southwest of the mid-19th century. Sunbank, uh, I can't say that, sun-baked and seeking shelter... Cap heads for the shade of some nearby rocks where, unseen by him, are lurking some Indians who can't help but notice that he bears the colors of the quote-unquote white troopers. The men are ordered to hold fire by their leader who is intent on taking Cap alive for questioning. But the star-spangled Avenger is not easily captured. He puts up a valiant tiger-by-the-tail style fight against the Redskins and ultimately convinces their leader, the famous Apache Geronimo, that he uh, does not wish to fight. And the two have a trippy, rambling, barely coherent conversation about the quote-unquote rules of peace, the great spirit, liberty, how all men are brothers, how all Americans are one people, bullets, and the truth. Or at least I think that's what they talk about. I really couldn't follow it. Suddenly, Cap realizes that he's about to be caught in the middle between these warriors and an advancing U.S. cavalry company. The Indians mount up and flee, nearly trampling our hero in the process. Cap recovers and charges into the oncoming Union army, shouting, No! Stop! Listen! But to no avail. 
and the mystic talisman does its thing again, depositing Captain America in a collapsed Kentucky mine. Probably a coal mine, but I couldn't find where that was ever mentioned in the story, what type of mine it actually was. The Avenger is trapped with about half a dozen other men, uh, with air rapidly depleting. As if that isn't bad enough, suddenly someone whiffs gas. Insert cat had tacos for lunch joke here. Fearing the most, or excuse me, yeah, right. Fearing the worst, rather, and desperate to save these men, Cap summons all of his strength and forces his way through the collapsed debris. Now, this actually reminded me of that uh, Spider-Man story where all the machinery was on him. That part I actually liked quite a bit. Miraculously, he manages to tunnel through to a clearing on the other side, paving an escape route for the miners. But when they follow the red, white, and blue-clad legend through the hole, they find that he has vanished as mysteriously as he appeared. Which brings us to chapter four. Let me fly where eagles fly. Let me die where heroes die. Let valor write in the skies of strife, a meaning to the end of life. It is a day when the first knights of air appeared in the chronicles of modern combat. It is the very moment that Captain America finds himself thrust into a romance with death. The next step in his journey is taken. Stop here for glory. Chapter 4 opens with Cap in the cockpit of a World War I fighter biplane being attacked by the enemy ace. As, the, as they engage in aerial maneuvers, American ground troops shoot at the pursuing plane. Somehow Cap manages a spinning maneuver through two close trees that the Red Baron can't duplicate, resulting in his plane being shattered. And so, in triumph, Cap looks, back, looks behind to see the wreckage, causing him to fly directly into an enemy observation balloon. As he leaps from the plane, he's once again enveloped by crackling energy, transporting him back to Mr. Buddha. Mr. Buddha chastises him for being uncomfortable, sharing events instead of just leading a parade. Cap gets ready to give him the YI order treatment when he is again transported. This time he's boxing the great John L. Sullivan. Cap is amazed by how Sullivan can shake off his strongest blows, but puts everything he has into a right cross that so slowly drops the champ. Just, as, just then, the police raid the event. Cap tries to help the champ, but is once again transported. So now, instead of helping John L. Sullivan, he finds himself helping a runaway slave who is being chased by bounty hunters. Cap attempts to be diplomatic, but the bounty hunters start readying a noose. But as, as they do so, a neighboring boy uses a rifle to shoot the rifle out of the hands of one of the bounty hunters. And that's just what was needed for Cap and the freed slave to fight their way out. Cap and the freed slave ride off, with Cap treating him in a way he isn't used to, as a man worthy of respect, as an equal. Cap rides off and he's thrown from his horse. As he regains his senses, he sees an approaching jeep, meaning that he's time-traveled once again. The military personnel in the jeep take Cap along with them to a bunker in the desert where they view an atomic bomb testing. Or was it a gamma bomb, perhaps? Maybe Rick Jones was out there in the fields. Upon the explosion, Cap transports once again, this time to the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, where he prevents a man from running in and saves him from a collapsing wall of brick. He helps the refugees fleeing the city and dives into the river to save someone. But while in the river, he transports again. He's now in the ocean where a great white shark bears down on him. 
He fights off the shark, but passes out from the lack of oxygen, and is brought into an elaborate undersea vessel where he's revived. He learns that there is a science team on board, learning how to advance the human race, and once again, he transports. He finds himself back with Mr. Buddha. Cap complains that, that the America he's been shown is the America he's always known anyway. And so, Mr. Buddha says that he is merely a doorway to the light behind. The light from the future, perhaps. At which point, Chapter 4 comes to a close, looking at Earth from the moon. Where are the boundaries of a country which can't stop growing? Early settlers crossed the Delaware and started the ball rolling until it became a missile which crossed the greatest river of all, the river of planets and stars, the limitless frontier where destiny still waits for those who carry a flag and a dream. Having sped across the past and the present, Cap is now confronted by the face of the future. The talisman has taken Captain America clear to the moon where he should be gasping and having his eyes sucked out of his skull, all uh, Total Recall style, but instead he is clad in a protective green spacesuit and witnesses a battle between warring factions. This is the future. But Cap isn't here long at all before he finds himself jumping once again, this time to Hollywood in its golden age, where he is pressed into service by the son-in-law of big shot J.B. Schmelzer for the grand uh, finale to the grand patriotic musical number that they're filming. Now, you'd think that Cap would love this shit, but instead he shouts cut and bellows for Buddha. Show yourself, he cries. It was you who spoke of America and the truth at the heart of it. I've got to see it, Buddha. Buddha appears and the two have a conversation that, you know, I'm just going to be perfectly straight with you folks, makes not a lick of goddamn sense whatsoever. Now, there are words and they're in English, but that's about it. That's all I could really make of it. Anyway, Cap and Buddha wind up outside a hick farmstead where an old man plays a fiddle for them, apparently unfazed by the sudden appearance of a living legend from World War II and a freaky bald midget in a diaper. <laughs> Cap just wants to listen to the music, but Buddha isn't, you know, quite finished pissing in his Wheaties yet, so time jumps him again so that they can spy on a ghetto kid from outside his window because that'd never get a practically naked little white guy's ass kicked at all. Buddha, apparently tired of messing with Cap, finally F's off, and the story concludes with a bunch of school kids coming running and hugging on him and telling him their dreams of the future and the things that they want to grow up to be. The end. The end, yes. The ever-loving end. <laughs> oh, my lord. Now, do you want to say why you dislike this so much, or should I say why I like it so much first? Okay, here's the thing. I, I, I don't really dislike it. I had a blast reading it. I really did. It took me forever to read it. I, I had to take this in small, bite-sized chunks. Because if, I think if I sat down and read it like it all in one shot, I'd have probably sprained my brain because <laughs> it just doesn't make any any sense at all. It's really an effed up story. But that said, I had a blast reading it. Um, it is quintessential Kirby in in every way, good and bad that 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 it, you know that that invokes. Um, the funny thing about this. Because I can remember thinking this as a kid as well. And this, I, I guess I had forgotten at some point, And this really reminded me of it. 
Cap can be kind of an asshole sometimes. And he <laughs> he's at his asshole best in this story because he's flat out rude. To, I mean, he's constantly threatening to beat Buddha's ass. Now, granted, Buddha is, you know, putting him through the ringer in this story and can't give a straight answer to any question. Everything's always couched in riddles and mystery and, you know, this weird Yoda speak that he's doing and everything. So that would be really annoying. But Cap's just funny in the things that, that he says. He's very hair trigger in this story. I've, and I've been I ripped kind off of by Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> that was probably my favorite moment of the whole thing as far as Cap just being... he He's downright wacky in some elements of the story, and that was probably the wackiest one of all, where he, as you described, he just suddenly just seemingly really for no reason, he completely loses his shit, and that is hysterical the way it happens because he just freaks out and he's just whooping ass on everybody it's great because you know he he suddenly realizes that he is serving as the inspiration for for uh what's her name betsy ross Mm -hmm. to to form the flag and he you know instead of being touched or being like oh my or you know whatever his 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 thoughts is which which came first, the costume or the flag? The paradox is too almost too much for Cap to bear. Really? Come on. And, right. and then he runs and puts his face against the wall like, oh, my God, get me out of here. Oh, He does. He looks like he's oh. crying. <laughs> Sad he does. Cap. He looks like he's just been picked on on the school bus. He's gone <laughs> off to cry. It's hysterical. I love it, though. I, I, I mean, I did have an absolute blast reading it. I thought it was a lot of fun. If you just kind of turn your brain off and just roll with it, and I liked the historical, uh, you know, the historical figures that they peppered the book with, because rather than be predictable and give you George Washington and and um, you Lincoln. know Abraham Lincoln and FDR and all these different characters, uh, Kirby went in some really strange directions. I mean, we've got Geronimo, we've got a uh, uh, who was the boxer? Sullivan? John L. Sullivan. Who I looked up because I'm like, I wonder if this is a real dude. Sure oh, yeah. enough, this absolutely. I, I encourage anybody because I'm not going to go into the whole thing here, but I encourage anybody that might be interested, look up this Sullivan dude. He His story is actually really interesting. I, I read the whole, um, I don't know if it was Wiki or what, but there was a whole website I found on this guy and I, I read his whole uh, biography and I thought it was really some fascinating stuff. I mean, he he was a real guy. And, I'm, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure the story is very uh, Hollywoodized and not true. But one of my favorite movies is Gentleman Jim, starring Errol Flynn, where he plays mm-hmm. Jim Corbett, who is the man who ultimately defeated John L. Sullivan. Right. The funny thing about that is the night that I was reading that. Um, now that fight where he was defeated took place in New Orleans, and the night that I was reading the story, I was actually staying in Port Orleans uh, Resort at, here at Disney, where. Uh, you know, it's modeled after like that era of New Orleans. I just thought that was very strange and ironic. Jim, also, Jim. you know, there, there's not a lot made of it in the story here, but the the boy that disarms one of the um, what would you call him? You know, one, the, the one of the guys. Well, bounty, yeah, one of the bounty hunters that's going to lynch 
uh, the runaway slave, or was he a slave or was he a free man? I'm not well, sure. He, he apparently he was a runaway slave who was in an in a an area where free people are, so that it was right. Uh, he, it's kind of like he escaped the jurisdiction where he could be a slave. Right. So, you know, the kid disarms one of them, and that basically starts the fight where Cap and the and the uh, slave are able to get away. Now, later, after the whole thing is said and done and Cap and, and uh, you know, his newfound friend go separate ways, there was a little after scene where the kid's father comes up and they have a little moment and everything. And you're, uh, there's a caption box that reveals that the father is John Brown, which, again, you know, the story oh, yeah. doesn't really make a big deal of it. It just mentions his name as John Brown and just a little bit about him. John Brown... Uh, had a nickname which was very apt. He was the meteor of the war. If it were not for John Brown, the the Civil War probably wouldn't have happened the way that it happened. I mean, his actions uh, and the and the rebellion that he tried to uh, bring about is what really set the ball rolling, you know, for the Civil War. So I mean, this guy's an incredibly important historical figure. But I like the way that Kirby just kind of peppered him in. So if you know who he is, you're like, wow, that's cool. If you don't know who he is, then it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the story one way or the other. And I like that because that's kind of how he treated everybody in this story, even Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I mean, you know, who doesn't know who Benjamin Franklin is? But the way he's played here is that there's not a whole lot made of him. You know, Cap kind of has a little bit of, you know celebrity hero worship but not a whole lot i mean he's just another character in the story now quick for anybody who's thinking john brown i've never seen him before if you're a fan of kansas the group kansas he's on the cover of one of their albums oh is he yes he is <laughs> there's there there's the iconic shot of him with his arms spread wide and i believe in one hand he's holding a bible and the other he has right. a rifle yes yeah i know that, that you're talking about yeah yeah that is huh. uh on a, Yep. Yep. He uh, he tr- he basically he tried to incite a mm-hmm. slave rebellion and some people wound up dead and he was eventually hanged. But his actions basically brought about the civil war because um, you know people who were abolitionists of course took objection to you know, the, the treatment of John Brown and, you know, they, they, it was like they almost sided with what, you know, they saw his intent, what he was trying to do, you know, raising public awareness and all, whether they agreed with his motives or not. People on the other side, you know, the Southerners saw it as this is what all these abolitionist bastards want to do. So we need to do something about it. And not long after began to secede from the union because this is what they feared was going to happen all along. And this was the natural progression of abolitionism. And it was, you know, it was literally Brown's actions that brought all this, you know, that was kind of seething underneath the surface anyway, brought it to light. And, and basically, you know, that again, that's why he gained that nickname, the meteor of the war, because he kind of accelerated a, a process that was already brewing anyway. And uh, I, I find him a really interesting character because he, he is incredibly divisive. He's, uh, he's been uh, described you know, by some historians as essentially the first real, um, 
what would you call it? Uh, like domestic terrorist. And I can mm-hmm. kind of see that, you know, if you if you if you view him from a from a modern sensibility, he almost comes off that way. And uh, I, I just think he's inter- you know, he's a really interesting historical character. It's it was an interesting choice of Kirby to uh, you know to have him be one of the the many figures that Cap chances across in his little you know bounce around time. Well, uh, just to to touch on that thought of the interesting figures he chooses to put in, you you mentioned the uh, Depression era and why would they use the Depression era there? Uh, and I think that was for the sole purpose of putting in a character, and that character being the newsboy. For like the newsboy legion? No, <laughs> because I think the newsboy is Jack Kirby. Ah, just the very last line he gives. Uh, when I get to be a big shot artist, I'm going to plaster Lefty's ugly mug all over the comic pages. Ah, okay. I can I th- see that. I think that's the reason he put that error in there, just so he could have himself. <clears throat> was he a newsboy? I think he was that. I'm not sure. I know he was. Actually, he would have been a little, uh, I think, just a little bit older than that. Although, I guess you know, the Depression started in the uh, in 29. So, he, yeah, he could have been that age. See, I kept expecting that Cap might run into himself in that. And I guess it was that thought that made me realize how kind of strange it was that Cap struggled with the date because the kid gives very specific references. He talks about Dillinger flying the coop and being on the lamb and about Roosevelt just shutting down the banks. Now, Cap lived through this era. So I, I was just a little bit shocked that you know, he, he would struggle with the date for this. Oh, unless, maybe maybe you know, that's ex- just for exposition purposes so for, the right. read, for the reader to find out what date it is. But I thought it would have been really interesting if, if he himself had been the newsboy, although the math on that probably wouldn't work quite right. But, you know, to have him actually oh. see himself as the scrawny Steve Rogers, you know, walking down the street or, you know, just something like, but it never happened. I was a little bit disappointed in that. There was another instance of something like that later on where um, now I'm assuming I'm not sure if, it, if I'm borne out on this in the dialogue of the scene, but I'm assuming that the test that Cap is at, I'm trying to flip to that point here to see if there is anything in the actual dialogue. Um, I'm not sure if it gives a year or the names of any of the people that are involved, but I was assuming that this was, yeah, because the guy says Alamogordo. The mm. the guy that welcomes him, General Halstead, who I, di- I didn't look him up, so I don't know if this is a real guy involved with the first A-bomb test or not, but the guy welcomes Cap. He says, welcome to Alamogordo, Cap. He says, uh, blah, 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 you know, we're doing this test, put these goggles on. So I just naturally assumed that this was the first A-bomb test. That test took place a few months after um, in Captain America uh, chronology where Cap would have disappeared. So I'm, I was a little bit surprised that they weren't more surprised to see Cap, but then I kind of no-prized it by, well, maybe it was not public knowledge that Cap had disappeared because they did try to replace him. You know, there was the 50s Cap who I'm mm-hmm. not sure the public was ever informed was a different Captain America. I can't remember. Do you, do you know for sure on that? I'm pretty sure that the public, you know, was 
made to think that was the original Captain America. That right. They, ne- they never announced, hey, he's a replacement. <laughs> right. We have a so new they, Cap, better right. than the old one. So maybe these military guys, even though this guy's a general, maybe he is not aware at this point that that Cap had been lost and that Cap was considered missing. So, you know, he's more... Uh, surprised in a pleasant way, like, hey, look who's here, as opposed to, holy shit, you know, it's Captain America back from the dead, which was my first thought, and like I said, kind of no-prized that, but I I like that he's present, which I think raises the question, is this real? You know, is Cap now, in Marvel history, was Cap present for these things? Did he really meet ben franklin and did he really fight you know sullivan and did he was he really at the first a-bomb test or was this some sort of um you know some well, sort of like the independence people. day version of a christmas carol you know I, I'm, well, I'm looking at it as the latter eh, well i mean then why do the people remember him after he's gone or do you think that that memory fades also I mean, because, like, after he disappears, the guy was set at the A-bomb test. They're astounded that he disappeared at the test. And they're saying there's nothing left but his goggles. And you, they say, you think that he was never here. I right. Mean, well, the, well, I mean, so that right there, you know, if Kirby wanted to say that or leave it ambiguous, then why include a scene after he disappears? And he's right. done that in a, in a few places. Well, Same I'm, thing I'm with the miners, just... too, yeah. I'm just thinking of it from Marvel continuity purposes. My oh. my mm-hmm. suspicion is this story did never actually, you know, none of, none of this actually ever took place in Marvel continuity. So uh, I'm thinking, as far as they're concerned, it's a Christmas Carol type story. But well, what, some, something what, to touch on with this story that I, I just want to hit on is you have to, besides just taking it as a trippy story, which it seems like you were able to do that, Scott, you have to look to it a, a little bit through the eyes of people when this first came out because this came out during the bicentennial and there was a patriotism at that time that was different from what we saw after 9-11 i'm sure it was different from what we saw uh after pearl harbor too uh it it was more of a, a pride with american history that i don't remember ever seeing at any other era but you know when this came out I was, I guess, 13 years old, and I bought this new off the newsstand, and I, I read it at the time, and I remember what was going on in the country at that time, and I, I remember uh, on the 4th of July going to the uh, harbor by the Verrazano Bridge and seeing the... Uh, Watch the tall ships come the, in. T- the tall ships and everything, and, and there was uh, such an excitement level for, you know, across the country for it being the 200-year anniversary of, of uh, Independence Day. Uh, right. And... and, and I think that's what this story is. I think this story is a love letter to American history. And it's not a love letter that's trying to sugarcoat it. It's taking on American history, warts and all, you know, hitting on slavery without being overly heavy handed, uh, you know, hitting on the, the, the great Chicago fire, hitting on prohibition, uh, you know, things that aren't all stuff that we'd be proud of necessarily, but are points of, of the development of the country. Uh, and I, I think dialogue aside, because I don't have any argument with you on the dialogue, Scott, but other than that, just from, from an effort to create a story that's a love letter to American history uh, and to present America, again, warts and all, 
uh, I think Kirby did a masterful job with it, and that's one of the reasons I love this story so much. See, I, I'd have to argue with you, though, that... See, I don't think it works on that level of celebrating America. That That's kind of my problem with it, because my, my initial reaction about midway through the story, because there's a moment where basically, and I think Cap himself says it, where I, I just had to stop and go, wait a minute. Now, now, who the hell is this Mr. Buddha guy? And why exactly is he trying to teach Captain friggin' America, the living <laughs> embodiment of the spirit of our country, the meaning of Christmas or whatever the hell he's trying to teach him? It's kind of like schooling Jesus on Christianity. It just makes you scratch your head and go, what? what the hell are you talking about? Because it's not like Cap was never in touch with his country to begin with. And that's kind of the point, I think, that is trying to be made in the story. Like, he, you, you need to get with it, man. You need to understand America. And it's like, wait a minute, you're talking to Captain America. And it just kind of lost me. Plus, I, I realized that this might be off-putting for other people, I went into this based off the cover thinking that this was going to be a big rah-rah, bicentennial, you know, go America celebration, you know, like the bicentennial. Because I remember the bicentennial much the same way you do. I was eight years old, and I remember the the rampant patriotism that was going on at that time. I, it was very exciting, and I love to watch you know, old TV shows or movies or whatever from that era because it was exciting. I mean, people were really, really hyped up about the Bicentennial. So I saw, I thought that this book would be more of a celebration of America and that sense of patriotism. And it really isn't. It almost well, as if it's trying to take the piss out of it because Buddha even says some things like, well, what were you expecting? A, a parade and a pageantry? And it's like, yeah, I kind of was. To no, be see, I, I see it differently. I, I, I think he, he, he doesn't. I don't think he says, "Did you expect a parade?" I think he's, I think he's saying, "You, you can't experience America and understand America by leading a parade." That's not what America is all about. And, and you got to remember too that you know I hit on some of the negative things he saw, but there was also the exploratory, uh, undersea area where they were, uh, you know, trying to come up with ways to advance the country. Right. Uh, there was, there was, you know, the fact that we made it to the moon, and that, that uh, although we were in battle up there, but that, that there's, you know, that that scientific advances there, and then there's the end of it with the kids, and yes, it's very hokey, but that's okay to me when you're trying to give the celebration of America with these children coming to Captain America and saying, yes, I understand, you know, I can be whatever I want to be, you know, to me that that's all part of it too, and that's part of the celebrating America, and I think that's what Kirby was presenting, and I think sometimes a little ham-handedly i'm not i'm not disputing oh, yeah. that uh yeah. i mean and, and some of some of his things are you know you know what captain rock has never fallen off his horse i don't care if it bucks you know there's certain things that are just not true to the character so, uh so but, all right so oh. go ahead bill so these kids you know they can be whatever they want to be does the one kid with the perfect hair who looks probably that's probably young paul spataro why does he have a picture of me or scott gardner on his shirt I, I'm gonna have to see. I mean, who it is you're talking about now? Because I don't have that. It's page. like it's like the next. <laughs> I, I, I see who you're talking about. 
Yeah, it's you got this just seventy-seven second panel. Yeah, it's young Paul with uh, young Paul Spataro with a picture of uh, Doctor Bill, <laughs> as drawn by Mark Kalmbach. <laughs> Perfectly oh, yeah, coiffed hair right there. Yeah, I do with, have with hair like Stalin. <laughs> and that that kid looks to be about thirteen. He's bigger than the other kids. Yeah, by the time I was thirteen, I already had the mustache. <laughs> Like, what, 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 what is that? I know I'm kind of derailing it because I'm, I'm there's there's a few other things in here that I want to pick apart, but uh, but getting back to the to the patriotism. Up, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I, just, I I do get a kick out of the picture with all the children of of the way he really went out of his way to show, you know, as diverse a crowd as possible. You, know, right. you, got, you got the hick farmer kid, you got the uh, androgynous kid with the thing on his shirt. You have the uh, American Girl doll sitting on his knee. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's just you have the Chinese kid looking. You know, young Shang Chi is looking over his shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> um, you've got I don't know what that kid's doing with that football and that helmet. He's like, yeah, that that kid is like out of, like, out of hey. that's like Chris Honeywell over there. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I get a ball. But I mean, it, it's definitely. I definitely think it's a case of your mileage may vary, and it depends on how much you can get into it. And uh, I honestly don't believe Why though that the I'm viewing this. Why does the black kid have a target on his chest? What? What oh. the? Hell I think is that's the CBSI. Oh, okay. That's but, just all kinds of wrong. I, I don't think I'm viewing this through nostalgic eyes. I think I'm viewing it today, but with a, a memory of what it was like back then. Uh, and I, and I really just like this book. And I'm looking at the picture now as, you know what, a kid that age would never wear that little tiger on his hat. Get his, well, never mind. He'd be like, Mom, I can't go without, out with that. The kids will make fun of me. Wear your I, tiger see, hat. I, I think I'd have liked it better, though, if, all right, so if you look at the back cover, which I'm not crazy about because um, it's a little bit, it's just a little bit awkward. But I like what he was going for here. You've got, there's a birthday cake that says happy 200th birthday birthday cake is topped by the statue of Liberty and it's cap and uncle Sam shaking hands. I think I would have liked this story a lot more if it had basically done the same thing, but it had somehow been uncle Sam taking cap through American history and trying to, I don't know, teach him something or show him both sides of, you know, our history, good and bad or something to that effect. But again, it's this combination of, I mean, it, was he like supposed Uncle to Buddha? be a little, I, I just I, don't care for him at all. It, it, it was just really strange. And, the, and the, the way he spoke, and it was hard to get a handle for what exactly was the point. What, what was he trying to teach him? Uh, just, just to back before we get to that question, I would think that you would have, you wouldn't want to have Uncle Sam bring him through the whole thing, because Uncle Sam at that time was a character being used in the Freedom Fighters by DC. Now, right. the image of Uncle Sam is, you know, public domain. You could use him, but when he's, you know, reasonably prominent with your competition, I don't know if you want to have him in your issue. Then why put him on the cover? He's on the back cover. I don't know, because right. Kirby drew it, and they said, oh, okay, we don't want to throw this out. We'll use it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I was a little bit perplexed by that. Um, I, got, I, got a, I got a content, a, well, a, like a 
what, what, what the heck happened question. All right, beginning of Chapter 4. Suddenly, Cap is in a plane that's already in flight. What happened to the original pilot? Fell out. <laughs> oh, Captain America's coming. I gotta jump out of the plane. <laughs> Who died? Or did he suddenly, when Cap jumped out of the plane, he suddenly appeared back in the plane as it smashed into the balloon and crashed? <laughs> Thanks, Cap. <laughs> Ass. Yeah, it's, oh, Cap also <laughs> wouldn't fly into a balloon. No, you know, he just jumped out of the plane, and the plane flew into the balloon. If he was going to fly into a balloon, though, he would do it intentionally. It wouldn't be that he flew into a Nazi. He wasn't watching where he he was was going. He was texting while he was flying. It was like Return of the Jedi when the the speeder bike pilot there is watching (laughs) Princess Leia fall into the brushes. Then he looks back and plows into a tree. It was the same exact scenario. Cap's so intent on watching what is really an awesome crash of the other plane, by the way. I love that panel of the... The plane just coming unglued as it smashes into those trees. He's looking back thinking, well, that was close. And he's the very next panel. He's going, (laughs) (laughs) and the guys in the balloon are going, my God. Ah!" Now I, I gotta say that you can see a significant difference as you look through this issue. If you look closely, uh, between the the John Romita inked pages, the Herb Trimpey inked pages and the Barry Smith inked pages. And for my money, the Barry Smith pages, which was the first chapter, are by far the best. Yep. And that's coming from a guy whose favorite artist is John Romita. Yep, I completely agree with you. The the yeah. Barry Smith pages, to me, they remind me of art that I love so much that uh, by by Marie and John Severin. The the mm-hmm. the inking on it, it just I, I really think it's so well done with the one exception of just before he smashes Hitler's face uh, as Hitler's trying to get away from him and Cap is grabbing by the coattail he looks like he's something out of an underground comic yep but but I, I think I think the inking in that chapter is just incredible and all topped off at the very very last page of the chapter with that you know Cap walking uh, by the mural of, of the fighting soldiers I guess of the revolution or it could be the Civil War. It's hard to tell, but just an awesome, awesome page. I'll tell you, probably my favorite part of this entire book, honestly, was the, the page, the first page after the end of the story. So the story ends on page, what is it, like 80, I think, something like that. And then there's a bunch of pinups. Some are interesting and some are really, you know, whatever. But the very first one is they're they're basically like what ifs. They're you know just it's just one panel splashes you know pinups, but it's basically like what if Cap existed in this time period? The very first one is a colonial Captain America. It says he might have looked like this had he been created in 1776. I would love to cosplay as this. I think this is cool. We would love to see you cosplay as that. I mean, I just think this is really because he he's basically like a cross between, you know, traditional Captain America and one of the Minutemen. And I just think it looks really cool. Wasn't there a character introduced, I think, in the Invaders similar to that called I think it was called like the Spirit of 76. Something like that. Yeah. Well, there was also a character. If you ever played a game called uh, Freedom Force, that was back. Yes. In, yes. Uh, I, think it was I love that late- game. Late 90s, early 2000s, I think, there was a character called uh, Minuteman. Minuteman, yeah. 
and he looked a hell of a lot like this too. But I, I just I think this is a great outfit. I also it's love the really uh, uh, what you call it, the red skull as a red coat, right? In the fiction, Hesianasi, Hes- <laughs> It says, yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah, very cool. Um. Oh, I wanted to point out too, because uh, this was the uh, the book uh, I covered last year. Because I always like to do ind- Independence Day shows when I can find the time to do them. Last year, I did an Independence Day show um, for uh, the Superman show that I was doing at the time. As a matter of fact, I think that was the last episode I did. So, God, it's been a year since I've done an episode of that show. Um, but right about the same time in DC Comics for the Bicentennial, Superman went back in time. And as Clark Kent worked for Benjamin Franklin. So I think it's interesting that both Clark Kent and uh, Captain America both met Ben Franklin for the Bicentennial. I think that's kind of cool. If, if my memory is right, that was part of the regular series in action comics, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so was that, a, that wasn't a special issue or anything. No. That was a... Th- three-part story i want to say something like that it had the, the really weird uh rip taylor looking guy or rip Tw- yeah rip yes harbrack yeah because <laughs> it's got that cover that uh that rip torn is... looking guy right rip torn yeah <laughs> it's rip you torn, know it's taylor. one of my favorite comic covers from that era but it's also one of the biggest cheats of all time because it shows carbrack Hitting Superman so friggin' hard that he knocks him back in time 200 years, that never actually happens in the story at all. It's the biggest cheat, but it's a great cover because mm-hmm. he is just baffing the daylights out of Superman. It's great. Love that cover. I mean, this is really in my heyday of comic collecting, too. So mm-hmm. these, these stories are all awesome to me. I was really glad that you chose the chapters that you did for us to cover because um, I liked both of my chapters quite a bit. I really liked that chapter five started with Cap on the Moon and one of the pinups at the I think it's the very last pinup. I'm flipping through it now. Yeah, the very last pinup is also a picture of Cap on the moon but it, this one's a much more traditional looking cap it's basically cap's uniform adapted into an astronaut uniform and his shield actually has an apollo logo on it which i think is just awesome and he's standing on the surface of the moon and when i read that chapter of the story where he was there and then i saw this pinup instantly reminded me of my favorite story that spun out of uh, House of M, which granted was not a storyline I was particularly fond of anyway, but I don't know if you guys ever read this uh, in the Captain America series that was going at the time that House of M was at was out, and I'm not sure what volume that was. Volume four, I think, of Captain America it was issue number ten from 2005. There was a one-off story that was a tie into House of M, and you know House of M was all an alternate timeline and everything. In that story, Cap was an old man because he'd never disappeared at the end of World War II. And Cap in that story is revealed to be the first man on the moon. It actually, you know, because he was Captain America, they just, you know, they they went from him being a wartime hero. They they brought him into the astronaut corps and he led, uh, you know, America's charge into space and was the first man on the moon. I, I've loved that story ever since I read it. It's just one of my favorite Cap stories, even though it, you know, it is an alternate uh, 
an alternate timeline and everything. It just instantly reminded me of that when I saw this image of Cap on the moon. I thought that was cool. Did either of you guys get a, a, a Star Spangled Man with the Plan vibe from the musical number? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's hard to look at those pictures and not think of that. I'm yeah. wondering if in some small way they, that, that the movie was inspired a little bit by that. Yeah, I wonder about that, too. Because on page 70, where the the production starts up and, you know, the girls are out dancing and everything, Cap's kind of looking behind him. There's a girl that's flying across the screen at the at the top of the panel. Actually, there's two of them now that I notice it. Um, I remember seeing a, a, a girl cosplaying as a female version of the Rocketeer at some convention, and that's kind of what she reminds me of a little bit, although it, it looks more like they have Zeppelin motors strapped to the top of them than rockets, but it's still pretty cool. Western Cap, by the way, that the other pinup no, image. No, no, no. Yeah, that one's ridiculous. <laughs> he would have gotten his ass kicked in the Old West because he looks like a complete girly man. Jonah Hex just would have put a bullet right in his head. Yeah, no kidding. would <laughs> <laughs> be like, what the hell are you supposed to be? Um, I think that's a pretty much about all. Oh wait, no, I did have one. <laughs> I did have one other note. Um, I would have this issue would have gone up so many degrees in in my estimation if during the part where they find themselves, you know, it never does say where the hell they are. They're just they're walking along and cap. It's just ridiculous. Here's Captain America walking through the woods. You got Bambi standing next to him. And Mr. Buddha is literally, and I don't know if he's supposed to be Asian or what. He's drawn very inconsistently through the entire course of the thing. But he's this little teeny, he's almost like a, he almost looks like one of those aliens from Close Encounters wearing a diaper. And they walk up to this hillbilly playing a fiddle out in the middle of nowhere. And I just wanted at some point the guy to be like, you sure do have got a pretty mouth. <laughs> it just never happens, you know. But I mean, if you were just if you were just some hick, you know, sitting on your front porch playing the fiddle, and these two freaks came walking up to you, would you be this relaxed? I mean, he just takes it completely in stride. He's like, "Here, let me play a little tune for you to dance to." And I'm thinking, you dance, know, he I'm should be looking at him and be like. You know what the hell are you supposed to put some clothes on? You know it, well, it's Cap's just got it's his, so strange. Cap's got his shield up because uh, he doesn't want to see little Buddha. <laughs> right? <He's> like, <laughs> yeah, you just stand over there. I'm gonna hold this shield up so I can't look at you. One-eyed Buddha. One-eyed <laughs> Buddha. Made now the, Buddha the page, the page where we make the transition from uh, outer space to the uh, production of the movie. Right. The top of the page looks to me like it's clearly inspired by 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Which Kirby drew the treasury ad- adaptation of. Oh, that's of. right. Yes. And the yeah. bottom of the page where you see Cap's close-up through the lens on the camera looks to me like that's the inspiration for the uh, the button on the cover of the issue by Stern and Byrne when Cap is running for president. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see. I never even thought of that, but you're absolutely right. It's funny. I should have thought of that, too, because after reading this, something got me to thinking about 2001. And uh, 
I keep meaning to go and read that series, and and I just never find the time to do it. But I've always wanted to read that, um, just because I, I've heard so many interesting things about it, and I'm I'm intrigued on you know I'm intrigued by Kirby's whole take on ancient aliens and everything anyway. And I've heard that that's a, a really good read. I've just never oh. made the time to read it. Like everything else, Kirby, written and edited. Be ready for trippy stuff. Oh, yeah. If, if see, you're not in the mood for like trippy, that, then don't read kinda, it. I'm sorry? I said, if you're not in the mood for trippy, don't read it. <laughs> well, with something like that, though, it seems like trippy would, would lend itself into the material where Cap, to me, I like Captain America where Captain America is very black and white. Very black and white, right, and right, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong, and you know everything's very clear cut. And that's not this. This is all about head trippy, you know, weirdness. And Cap's just not that character for me. And so I, I think that's why uh, on a lot of levels, writing-wise, it didn't work for me. But, you know, as a series of interesting vin- vignettes of Cap just kind of bouncing around through American history, yeah, it does kind of work. It, it's just when you actually read it that <laughs> it doesn't really work. But but I, I do think it has to be read with almost with that Christmas Carol type thought process. If you're looking for something in continuity that's going to have any type of superhero, supervillain type story, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You have you have to look at it, like I said, almost as if you're reading A Christmas Carol with Captain America in it. God bless us, Bucky. Everyone. I, mean, I, I can understand that, but again, it, it comes down to, okay, say a, in A Christmas Carol, you know, the whole point of that story is is let's take this guy through a journey, through the past, present, and future to redeem him, to teach him a lesson about something. Now, would Christmas Carol have worked if the ghosts had chosen to try their their stick with the nicest, sweetest, most kindest, givingest old man you'd ever met in your life? No, the whole point well, of the story is to if you want, if you want that take on it, watch A Black Adder's Christmas Carol. <laughs> okay. That's, that, yeah. was, that was their take on it. Because that's what's happening here is that you've got the Christmas Carol treatment trying to teach, you know, this is America to Captain America. It's just, I'm sorry, but it's kind of stupid. It's like, if anybody gets it, it's this guy. So, yeah, but wouldn't, what? yeah, but, but Cap would, well, not necessarily. I think what, what Paul's trying to say and what this is trying to say is that Cap. Yeah, Cap knows his era, and I mean, how much of a student of history was Captain America? And even so, even if you are a student of history, you're viewing history through other people's interpretations, through books and documents, and you can't uh, you you can't live it. And I think what Mister Buddha is giving cap the chances to actually live these events and see them through his own eyes and not having to interpret them i mean because i can't you you can't say that uh, yes you can say that cap is the living you know embodiment if, if you want to but he's still he's a living embodiment of that of his time of his existence and by going through this journey he can see firsthand how these times were of course he's going losing his shit like we said (laughs) (laughs) 
But I mean, I think that's, is that kind of where you're going with that, Paul? I, I, I would say yes. I, I think you, you put it pretty eloquently for you. I don't speak often, but when I do, <laughs> I surprise the shit out of people. No, I, I, I do. I think you said it well. Uh, I think, yeah, it, it's taking somebody who is, as Scott said, the living embodiment of American, the American dream, so to speak, but giving him, giving possibly the person who appreciates America the most, and even giving him a new depth of, of appreciation Understanding, for it. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I, when you put it that way, I can see that. Uh, before we, uh, before I forget, Bill, you have a little, uh, history lesson on, uh, Mr. Buddha. Who is Mr. Buddha? Now I've already told Paul, so obviously he can't say anything. Do you recognize Mr. Buddha, Scott? No. I believe the next time this character appears, but I, I didn't research it fully, but I, I remember the first time I saw this character. He is one of the elders of the universe, and his name changes to the Contemplator. And he is in the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run of Silver Surfer that started back in 87 and ran to like 1998. And um, early on in that, the elders of the universe gathered, because uh, each of the elders of the universe held a gem which became the gems for the Infinity Gauntlet, right? So early on in in, in that in that chap in that series, the elders of the universe tried to gather together to eliminate Galactus, but Galactus ended up fooling them and eating them. Then he got indigestion and belched them all up, basically, because he couldn't kill them because they were part of the universe, just like he's a part of the universe. Blah 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 blah. But I think that maybe the next time that. Mr. Buddha is seen, but his name is changed to the Contemplator, you know, because you've got him, the Grandmaster, the Gardener, uh, no, not the Scott Gardener, the Gardener <laughs> Gardener, and you know, e each of them had like uh, I think Mr. Buddha had the Mind Gem, and then I think Adam Warlock had the Soul Gem. So, so yeah, this that's that's the next time I think you see him, and also in that series for a while he was portrayed by a scroll with so it was like the phony. And I think he had another name, too, like Tion Ka or something. Yeah, he did. I don't yeah. recall exactly what it was, but he had a name, something like what you're saying. Yeah. Ta and, and Possibly. Yeah, because I'm looking here at the wiki for the Contemplator. See, I, you have amazed me because I would have thought that this guy was just... Oh, no, a, I, I know, knew exactly who he was the moment I saw him because he's got the same outfit. In the first page, I'm like, oh, it's a contemplator. And I go, who the hell's Mr. Buddha? <laughs> <laughs> but this this is this is an example of what Kirby did as a writer or as a creator. Because I think he did it even when he was uh when he was teamed up with Stan Lee. I think Stan Lee reined him in and and gave better, although not so much more realistic, but better dialogue to the characters. Uh but Kirby would just come up with these far out concepts that have been, you know, I mean, he started in the sixties with it really. Uh, and then he brought one over to DC in 1970 and did a little bit there. And he's created all these characters and concepts and thoughts that are still being mined to this day by the respective companies. Uh, mm -hmm. so he came up with these things and then, you know, so a character like this who's really uh, created here as a throwaway character, I have no doubt in my mind that, that he wasn't created to ever be used again. But somebody 
comes in and says, you know what, there's a little something there. There's a spark there. Let me take it. Let me let me play with it a little bit. And yeah, and, and, and and I think that's that's what Kirby does, and that's what he brought to the table so so often, and it's it's part of what defined his greatness. Hmm. <laughs> I'll stop. Ding, 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 so uh, I'll go last. What, what what letter grade are you giving this? Uh, well, I like the art early on, like we said, with the Barry Windsor. Um, art is, 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 um, I mean, I just think it's so much more, more detailed. And then after that, it's, yeah. I'm not a super Kirby fan. <gasps> I know some people, oh my God, I, 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 I don't live and die at the feet of Jack Kirby. I like some of his art more in the cosmic things than when he draws, like, say, when we're looking at the 40s. And, and I, I, I think his cosmic stuff and his machinery is awesome. And and a lot of the stuff he did on the Fantastic Four. But I'm not overly thrilled by a lot of the Western scenes, although some of the large battle scenes are pretty impressive. But just the, the, the mundane scenes, just, I, I don't know. For me, I'm going to kind of balance out the art, and I'm, I'm going to give the art a C. I know some people probably oh, oh, but hey, that's just that's just my taste. Sorry, and the story. Well, the story is the story is the story. It is uh, it is out there, and you know if you just let yourself go. I guess I like the story a little bit more than I do the art, so I'm going to give the story a B. And and that's for bizarre. <laughs> All right, Mr. Scott. Um, it's that's it's really a poser for me because I don't want to be overly harsh. I I don't. Come on, I'll be I'll be overly generous. So you go ahead and be overly harsh, and together we'll we'll average out to a normal person. Well, you know, it seems like every time I'm I'm honest about these things, then I all I do is invite a bunch of you know a bunch of hate mail and oh you don't like anything and oh uh, you know, hate mail to me you know you're a Kurt Swan hater you're a Kirby hater you're a blah 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 so I, I, I'm always hesitant to to give my true opinions on these things but you should never hesitate I'm gonna to give your true opinions in all seriousness. I'm so gonna somebody try doesn't to be, like it, then they shouldn't listen. Seriously, I'm gonna try to be fair, and, I, and I'm gonna put it this way: is that I have come in a way that I never did as a kid. I have come to respect Jack Kirby and his place in comic book history, and the influence that he had on the medium and on the characters, and and all of that. So historically, I understand how important he really was. So I respect the man. I don't think I'll ever be a fan of his art because, and I think the cover on this issue perfectly illustrates my point. Everything that Jack Kirby drew from this era, because this is the era I knew him from, you know, I I think he was a much better artist earlier in his career, and I think he is a, a prime example of something that I've talked about a million times in in the years I've been podcasting about artists that just you know God bless them, they just they get older and they kind of start to lose it, 
And I think this is an example of that. Everything Jack Kirby draws in this issue, to me, with the exception of the stuff that's inked by Smith, because I think he's smoothing out Kirby's style, but everything else looks like it's chiseled out of marble. And I don't like that look. You look at this cover and there's very few rounded edges on anything. Everything is from a block. It's like it's been chiseled. And I, I just don't like that. I don't like that look. Um, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's just too many flat lines, too much edge on everything. I, I like my stuff to be a little more fluid. But I like the dynamics that he does. So I think Kirby would have been a fantastic layout guy. Like, here's the action that you should have on your page. And then other artists take that layout and and run with it and create something beautiful. Because I love Kirby's visual aesthetic as far as the action goes. I just don't like the finished product. It's too stiff and blocky to me. So the art, I'm sorry, I just, I got to be honest, the art gets a super low grade on this because I'm just not a fan of Kirby's finished art. Um, I'd actually have to go really low, like a a D, because it doesn't visually appeal to me. And the only reason I'm not going with an F is I can follow the friggin' thing. You know, the ones that get an F for me are the ones where I just look at it and go, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. You know, uh, like say, so, you know, certain things by a, by a more modern day Keith Giffen, for example. Love the guy's early stuff, but I look at so much of his art today and just go, I don't even know what the hell I'm looking at here. What is this? And Kirby doesn't, you know, doesn't do that. There may it, it may not be pretty to look at, but I can follow it. Um. You know, so there's that. The story, I am so tempted to rate right down there, you know, with, you know, a a near fail grade as well, because I think, all right, maybe it's my my um, expectations of the story. But when I pick up something with Captain America that has the word bicentennial on the cover, I'm expecting pageantry. I'm expecting This is going to be a celebration of America and everything that makes this country awesome and everything that made the Bicentennial a hell of a fun event to live through. You know, the red, white, and blue and Stars and Stripes Forever and, you know, that sort of rah-rah American raw patriotism. And that's not what this book is. But that's tempered by the fact of I do like what Kirby sprinkled through the story you know, the, the historical figures that, you know, we talked about before. I'm impressed by him not going for obvious historical people that, again, I would kind of expect to see in a trip through America's, you know, 200-year history. You know, I would expect to see certain people, and he went counter to those expectations and gave me different people that I'm like, well, that's an interesting choice. I like that. So, you know, I was tempted between the art and the and the story to give this book a flat up like, you know, D or even a D minus. But 
I'll, I'll temper on the story side of it. And even though I think it fails as a bicentennial story and it's really trippy and weird, I still had a hell of a lot of fun reading it. At the end of the day, I still walked away from it going, man, that was some wacky shit, but I liked the ride. So I, I'll go more of a, you know, more of a, say, D plus C minus. I'm not crazy about it, but I, I could read it and, and get a chuckle out of it at the end of the day. So as a his, I, I will say this, it's a, it's a fun historical oddity. I guess is the kindest thing I could say about it. Send all hate mail too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, 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 I've often made a point of saying everybody's opinion is their opinion. And you can't tell anybody they're wrong for having an opinion, despite how often we try to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your your opinion is it it didn't you know it didn't do it for you. My opinion is it did it for me. Uh, neither of us is wrong. Neither of us is right. It's it's our opinions. Uh, but I I do. This this may be the book that's as uh, polarizing for you and I as any book we've done on this show, because mm-hmm. I love this book. Uh, I think for the most part we we usually agree. And and when we talked about this yesterday, I said uh, it's it's kind of nice that we don't because I think sometimes we almost agree too often that it, that it's nice to have a little healthy debate every once in a while. Uh, now I do kneel at the altar of Kirby. I have to admit, uh, if my, I've often said my top three all-time artists are John Romita Sr., Jack Kirby, and Neil Adams, in that order. So we've got uh, we've got two of the three working in this book, and surprisingly, the pages that John Romita Sr. worked on are not my favorite in there. Uh, all three of us are in total agreement that the Barry Smith pages are the superior pages in this book. Now, what is the chat? Because I am ashamed to admit that beyond the the Smith chapter, I couldn't place the anchors. Well, I I, I mean, I I can't sit right now and break down the pages, but you could see the Smith cha- the Smith chapter is quite distinctive. Right. Uh, in yeah. fact, you know what? What I was as I was looking at it when we were talking about it, I mentioned uh, uh, a feeling of of Marie and John Severn, whose art I love. Uh, and, and his art is surprisingly similar, considering it's two different people. I, sometimes I used to think that John Severin uh, was just a ghost name for Marie because she was a, a woman in the business and that she was, you know, actually pretending to be her brother or something and drawing the pictures under his name. Uh, but I also see a lot of Jim Steranko in, in those pages that are inked by, uh, by Barry Smith. Right. Now, Barry Smith is, is known for having professed a, a love for Kirby, and this is the only time he actually worked on his books. Uh, so th- I'm sure this was a labor of love for him. Uh, the, the Romita pages, you could see it's pretty. It's a pretty clean uh, going over of the Kirby pencils, uh, whereas the Herb Trimpey ones, uh, despite the fact that I have a fondness for Trimpey, the Trimpey ones are the weakest of the three by far. Uh, they don't have the real detail. They they almost look a little uh, rushed. Uh, and and if you look more closely, I think you'll be able to separate those pages out. Uh, but one thing you mentioned is is Kirby as a layout artist. Uh, that was a common practice in the '60s, actually, not because they didn't like the Kirby final product, but because he was the house style for Marvel Comics. So 
since he couldn't draw every single issue of every book, uh, they would frequently have him do layouts for a book and then give it all, hand it off to the artist that would do the final work on it, uh, just so that it would stay in the house style. Uh, I think you see the strongest work from Kirby between 66 and 70. So I do agree with you that this is past his prime, uh, but I do still think you see the spark of what made him great in this. Uh, and and, and I, I, I really do love his work, especially he's probably the artist more than any other that if you see his raw pencils, you can really appreciate the detail work and, and the, the cleanness of, of his style. Uh, I do feel that he did get too sharp-edged, uh, certainly with hands and faces to some extent, uh, but it's still I, I still see the spark of greatness in, in all of his work, even, even when he was... Uh, this this is past his prime, and then he got way past his prime, like ten years later, and was still doing things. Uh, and and you know you could see uh, he he didn't have the same ability, but you could still see that spark in it to some extent. Uh, I love all Kirby work, and I would I would love love to own an original page of anything of his, uh, which kills me because early in my uh, comic collecting career, they were selling them at at the cons for a song, and and I never thought to buy them because why would I buy why would I spend all that money on one page when I can buy 20 new books for that idiot uh, the story I am somewhat back and forth on because on the one hand I do see it as a love letter to the bicentennial I do see it as, as a uh, story that, that's giving you America warts and all but showing you America as uh, pioneers as people who are going out there who are, who are blazing new ground who are who are in, in inventing things, creating things, investigating things. I, I think it does capture that spirit of America. Uh, that said, I think the dialogue is often false. It often falls flat. It's just not, you know, he, Kirby could not handle dialogue. It was not something he should do. That's why he worked so well with Stan Lee, because he didn't have to do the dialogue himself. I'm giving the odd on this book because it is past his prime Kirby. I'm giving it a B plus for me. Uh, the story, as I said, I, I love the, the basic concepts. I don't love the dialogue. I would give the, the concepts an A. I would give the dialogue a, a D. So I'm going to give it a C plus on the story. And overall, I'm giving the book a B. And again, B is my fair reading on it, I think. I think I'm, you know, uh, giving it as, as an objective view. Whereas if I was just saying for me and what I think of this personally, I'm giving it an A plus. But from a, an objective point of view, I'm giving this a B, and, and I'm standing by that. I don't care what you say. And you that's better it. better care, mister. <laughs> <laughs> don't make me come down there. <laughs> uh, you guys got anything else on this? No. I, for me, I, I think I said my piece on it. I think we've just about covered it unless you got anything else bill no no uh, i think think we've uh, i think we got it all right i hope everybody enjoys listening and has a great fourth of july be careful nobody nobody shoot anybody's eye out and our next show will be back to the format of three random books sweet Be lovers will marry our fortune.
years together I've got some real estate here in my bag So we bought a pack of cigarettes And this is Wagner Pies And walked off to look for America As we boarded a greyhound in Pittsburgh Michigan seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in my raincoat She read her magazine And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost, I said Though I knew she was sleeping Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, 
And also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.